Well, hello again, Zane Horowitz and the, uh, the crew here at the Oregon Poison Center on Thursday, July 25th for our first uh, new journal club of the season. And we'll be talking about trying to catch some Z's, the Z drugs that have been on the market recently. We'll start off with an article kind of caught my eye, just kind of a one-pager in the front of the Journal of American Medical Association about a month ago about Zolpidem-related surge in emergency department visits and kind of went over some, you know, basic interesting statistics. Um, Zolpidem use increased about 220% from 2005-2010. When, when 2005, there was about 6,000 ER visits nationwide, and by 2010, there was nearly 20,000 ER visits for Zolpidem-related adverse drug reactions or overdose. Um, three out of four of those were involved in patients who were older than 45 years old, and roughly uh, two-thirds of those were women. Basically, there's about 70 million people in the United States with a chronic sleep disorder, um, and the Food and Drug Administration approved Zolpidem back in 1992, and it's under about four different prescriptions right now. You can get Ambien, which is the immediate release, Ambien CR, which is delayed release, Edular, which is like a sublingual dissolving uh, uh, product, and then Zolpidemist. Uh, it's like a breath spray that makes you go to sleep. So all these drugs are out there. Um, adverse reactions, we all know what these are daytime drowsiness, and we'll talk about some of these other ones. Um, about half of the visits in that year and last year involved multiple drug use. So if that doesn't uh, get your interest enough about the surge in ER-related visits from uh, emergency departments, uh, this other article uh, several years ago caught my eye. I figured I'd bring it back in. This was an article by um, folks in Pennsylvania, I believe, Bob McNamara and a variety of other uh, uh, people, Brian Macbeth is the main author. It's called Modafinil and Zilpidem used by emergency medicine residents. So it's not just the patients who are using um, Zilpidem, but perhaps the uh, people taking care of you as well. They start off with a couple of statistics saying there was 42 million sleep aid prescriptions filled in the United States in 2005, probably similar to where they got that first um, article for. And they basically did a pretty unique study. So in all the Emergency medicine residents had to sit for their in-service exam that year. In uh, 2006, they were asked to participate. They were given a waiver of informed consent, and they were asked a bunch of questions about different substances, but they were basically interested in modafinil, which is sort of a drug for sleep shift disorder or something to help keep you awake, and Zolpidem, which was found in prior surveys to cause um, a fair number of residents uh, using it to get through shift work. So they used it in all 134 emergency medicine residency programs that were at the time. They had a 99% resident participation rate, which is like awesome for a research survey. Um, of the 4,200-plus residents who sat for the exam that year, um, almost 2,400 returned the survey. Um, and they were asked several questions. I'll briefly go over the modalphanol since we're not really talking about it much today, but of a very small number, about two and a half percent reported that they had used that drug in the past month, and they had used it at least during one night shift to remain awake in about nine, uh, 25 percent of those who did say yes. And most of them reported some mild side effects. But what's interesting in us today is how many were using Zolpidem. So out of those nearly 2,400 respondents, emergency physicians taken the in-service exam, um, about a, quarter, uh, a fifth had used Zolpidem, 21.8%. 324 reported Zolpidem use initiated for the first time during their residency. 57% said they used it rarely. 37% said they were occasional users. And about 4% said they used them on most days. And 0.6% said they used it every day. Uh, they used the drug to help transition back to sleep after a series of night shifts or to help take a nap prior to a night shift. And some people, 7%, reported using it in multiple doses within a 24-hour period because of problems with falling asleep. Most of them, 60%, felt it didn't affect their clinical performance, although we'll talk about an article that's a little bit worrisome next. 30% um, of them felt they were actually better 
doing their job as a result of Zolpidem, although 9%, almost 10% felt they were slightly worse or much worse. Side effects were reported by about a fifth or 22.6%, including drowsiness, headache, hallucinations, depression, mood liability, and amnesia. Not good things to have if you're trying to get through a night shift. Probably the most interesting thing was sort of the, uh, you know, the open box, do you want to comment more? And these are, there's like a list of things that people said in the survey, which are pretty interesting. I'm not going to read them all. I just kind of highlighted a few of them. One was, I slept through three alarm clocks, have not used it since. One was, I had transient diplopia. Another one, I had impaired memory for a few hours. Another one, I was lethargic for the first few hours and it seemed like I was intoxicated. The other one was, I was transiently depressed and emotionally unstable. One was, I slept for 14 hours and felt groggy all day, so I never took it again. I blacked out and forgot discussions. Another one said, it just made me feel wacky, and one person said they had visual hallucinations. So not a very good track record of the few people who had side effects. Um, and so they seem to conclude that its use is pretty common during emergency medicine residency. A lot of the users seem to have started it during residency. They talk about how it sort of became acculturated in several programs where it was like you're not supposed to show your weakness and you're supposed to be able to make it back to a night shift and people just start using it for that reason. Um, and as a final note, I just want to, they did say that the Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs of the American Medical Association states that it is inappropriate to self-prescribe as controlled substance. Requesting a prescription from a colleague who is not your treating physician is also an inappropriate imposition and writing the prescription may contribute to underlying substance abuse problems. So there are more concerns on the provider side about Zolpidem. And finally, just a, a couple of case reports before we get into the pharmacology and other issues involved with these drugs. Uh, an article from our colleagues to the north in the Washington Poison Center from 1998 by Curtis Elko, Jeff Bridges, and Bill Robertson. Um, and they talk about a case series of five cases that I'll summarize very briefly. You all had hallucinations taking Zolpidem, although often mixed with other drugs. So the first one was a 20-year-old female who took 10 milligrams of Zolpidem for four days. She had hallucinations of being attacked, seeing spiders, and seeing a dragon. She was also taken fluoxetine. A 27-year-old female was concerned about a drug reaction. She was on Zolpidem, 10 milligrams, the usual dose, for just two days. Uh, 45 minutes after the last dose, she had hallucinations like light tracers and things coming out of the mirror. Uh, two weeks later, um, thinking it was a drug interaction, she, she had discontinued the other drug, which is terfenidine, and she still had similar hallucinations just with that. Uh, she was, although, taking the antidepressant venlafaxine throughout. The other one, also a female, 25 years old, had used, again, 10 milligrams at night sporadically, had recently stopped taking both sertraline and trazodone, but was still taking disipramine, had vivid hallucinations, also light tracers, things moving like a light show, 30 minutes after taking Zolpidem. The fourth, uh, a male this time in his 60s, was also taking Zolpidem 10 to 20, um, had taken sertraline, one hour after taking a 20 milligram, he was waving his arms about with his eyes closed and stating there were bugs all over the room. This lasted about two hours. And finally, the last case was a 17-year-old taking Zolpidem 5 to 10 daily for about six months with bupropion. And he had, get through a couple of tables, uh, increased his dose up to 60 a night, so clearly a very high dose because of continuing insomnia. And his mother had called the poison center saying he was hallucinating. He felt like he was on acid, he was seeing patterns on the walls and shadows moving, and it lasted about three or four hours after which he finally did fall to sleep. So again, between the residents complaining of not liking the effects of it, these patients, most of whom were on other psych drugs, as the discussion points out, including SSRI seemed to be the main one, and they went and reviewed the literature and found other similar comments about uh, patients taking it in the literature, such as macropsia, which is like thinking things are enormously large, objects that weren't there, walls moving, marbles rolling, colored spots. A lot of people had this sensation of movement that was not real that they were seeing as a result of taking Zolpidem. So this is sort of the trend with a lot of drugs. They 
try to replace a drug that previously had problems, which are the benzo class of sleep aids, and you think this is safer, it's not a benzo, but as we'll see as we review the next two articles written by Naren Gunja in the most recent journal of J Medtox, we're going to review the pharmacology, the forensic toxicology, and the side effects of these drugs, and perhaps they were not as much of a breakthrough drug as we thought they might be. So to start off with our discussion for today is our brand new fellow, Jan Stefani, telling us a little bit about the clinical toxicology of these drugs. Thanks. So um, this article is called The Clinical and Forensic Toxicology of Z-Drugs. Uh, specifically, it, it looks at um, the, the main Z-Drugs that are in use today around the world, um, both in the United States and, and in Europe and um, uh, in some of the European countries. So the main ones are Zolpidem, which we commonly know as Ambien, um, Zopiclone, um, which is, the, the brand name is Imovane, and um, Zaleplon, which is also known as Sonata here in the United States. Um, interestingly, Zopiclone is actually a, a mixture of uh, two enantiomers. So in the United States, we have Lunesta, which is S-Zopiclone, um, which is just our, or I'm sorry, the S enantiomer. So um, they, they start out in their introduction talking a little bit about the, the importance, in, importance of insomnia and uh, kind of the loss, the morbidity associated with that in our country, 5 to 15% of people diagnosed with insomnia um, and up to 40% of people with daytime sleepiness. So like Zane mentioned, in the 1980s, uh, we really tried to come up with some non-benzodiazepine drugs that will help with insomnia and um, help uh, people sleep better. Um, and the thought was that if you could isolate the hypnotic effects, um, you could reduce sleep latency, improve sleep quality, and generally try to prolong people's sleeping time. So in the United States, like I mentioned, um, there's three that are approved, Zaleplon, Zolpidem, and Esopicone. Um, so like benzodiazepines, um, the, these newer Z drugs are, are uh, GABA agonists, um, but they have a little bit of shorter duration of action and half-life. Um, they're reported to not disturb overall sleep architecture um, and cause less residual effects during daytime hours, which ideally makes them more clinically attractive than the benzodiazepines, which have significant sedative properties. So in the past, so when they were marketed, they really kind of pushed the, these are very safe and they do what we want them to do. But over the past 15 years of use, there's been a lot of more increasing reports of bizarre and complex behaviors from the Z-drugs. So the, the, the point of this specific article is a really nice review, and the, the goal is to focus on the pharmacology and toxicology of the Z-drugs, um, specifically with respect to their adverse effects, toxicity, and forensic considerations. So they did a search um, for all the articles relevant to, to these particular Z-drugs. So when we review the pharmacology, just to, just to take a step back and look back at the benzos, so the benzodiazepines work by binding non-selectively to the omega and 1 and 2 receptor subtypes of the GABA-A receptor, um, which leads to increased opening of the chloride channel and um, uh, inhibitory effects in the CNS system. Um, so the sedation and, and amnesia are mediated mostly through the alpha-1 subunit, and the alpha-2 and alpha-3 appear, subunits appear more to be involved in, in sleep regulation and anxiolysis. So the Z-drugs bind to the same binding site as the benzodiazepines, um, uh, but they, they, have, they do differ in structure. So Zolpidem um, acts mostly through the alpha-1-containing um, GABA receptor and the GABA-A receptor, um, but it also does have some agonists at the alpha-2 and 3 subunits. It has very little effect at the alpha-5 subunit. So it's considered a, a very potent sedative and a hypnotic, but it has very minimal anxiolytic uh, effects. So the standard dose that we use is, is 10 milligrams um, taken at bedtime, um, although we'll see as we talk about it a little bit more, um, there have been lower dose recommendations for uh, specific patients, uh, specifically elderly and people with hepatic impairment. There's also some extended release preparations of the Zolpidem that are starting to come out a little bit more. Um, treatment duration, uh, it says usually is about one to six months, um, but that depends on a lot of uh, a lot of other things. 
Clinical efficacy uh, of Pazidra or of Zolpidem is um, said to be comparable to, to short and long-acting benzodiazepines with regard to sleep onset duration and quality of sleep. So moving on to Zopiclone, um, it is actually has a chemical, this chemical structure is not similar to Zolpidem or the benzodiazepines, but it has similar pharmacokinetic effects. So like I mentioned, this is a racemic mi mixture of two enantiomers. Um, and only the S and amptiomer is, is marketed in the United States. Um, but the, the zopaclone, the, the racemic mixture, appears to be uh, used more in Europe. Um, the alpha-1, it, it works mostly against the alpha-1 subunit, um, and the duration of action is the longest of the Z drugs, um, actually extending up so it's comparable to some of the short-acting benzos. So, um, because it, it lasts a little bit longer, zopaclone is recommended more for the induction and also for maintenance of sleep. S zopaclone, the, the enantiomer, um, actually has greater efficacy at the alpha 2 and 3 subunits, um, and it has a little bit of shorter effect. <coughs> so they add in the R enantiomer to get more of that alpha 1 um, effect for uh, a little bit more sedation. Um, the zeloplon. The third one, um, which uh, we know is uh, uh, Sonata, um, it has selective binding to the alpha-1 subunit and very low affinity um, to the 2 and 3 subunits. So this one in particular is very short-acting. Um, so it's really uh, marketed to, to reduce sleep latency, um, specifically uh, to decrease the amount of time falling asleep. And then it's also recommended for those who have middle-of-the-night wakening. But because it's so short-acting, it doesn't do very well for sleep maintenance throughout the night. So looking at pharmacokinetics of these drugs, they're all rapidly absorbed, and they all have short, short half-lives. Um, they have rapid peak levels. And again, this is ideal for this kind of drug. This is what you would want because you want to reduce sleep latency, but you want to minimize the, the prolonged later effects. Zolpidem um, specifically is 90% protein bound. It's metabolized by P450 system, specifically uh, CYP3A4. Um, elderly, elderly patients and those with um, liver disease have a higher time to maximal concentration and a half-life, so that's why they recommend that these, the dosage reduction for these groups. Um, and as Zane mentioned, there's multiple formulations for this, so sublingual um, in addition to some others. Um, Importantly, in, in January of this year, uh, the FDA released a safety announcement um, kind of addressing the, the lower dosage and recommended not only in elderly people but also in women um, for a lower dosage due to delayed elimination and uh, some residual daytime effects that they were seeing. So with regard to Zopoclone, again, this one is the longest latency and half-life, um, so it has the most potential for residual effects. Um, it's the, the S enantiomer that we use here. Um, the onset is shorter and, and offset is faster. Um, so that could potentially have a little bit less um, prolonged sedative effects and uh, sleepiness effects than, than the racemic mixture. Um, these are metabolized by oxidation, methylation, and decarboxylation, um, and the active metabolites are renally excreted. Um, interestingly, this one is this is the only Z drug where the dosage reduction um, in patients is, is recommended if they have renal impairment um, because of the renal excretion. But that's only for the, the racemic mix, mixture and not for the s Um And then the Zaleplon has the shortest half-life. Um, again, so this one has rapid onset, rapid offset. Um, it does have um, significant first-pass metabolism, so it's pretty low bioavailability which is why this one should be reduced also with hepatic impairment. Interestingly, this one is not really metabolized by the CYP34A as much as the other ones. Um, its main metabolism is through aldehyde oxidase. So overall drug interactions are pretty predictable for these drugs, mostly relating to the CYP34A, as that's how Zolpidem uh, and Zopoclone are, are metabolized. Um, They've looked at flumazenil, um, and it does appear to antagonize the sedative effects of the Z drugs. Um, and then they also note that uh, 
combination of azopinum and benzodiazepines has been shown to significantly increase the risk of hospitalizations and falls, which is, is kind of expected. As far as adverse effects, um, generally uh, the most common effects are headache, GI upset, and dizziness. Again, these, these effects are worse in elderly patients. Some of the less common adverse effects include pruritus, visual disturbance, and xerostomia. And um, the residual uh, daytime effects, are, which Annette will talk about, um, is, is pretty a uh, major problem as well. So in 2007, there was actually a, the FDA released a, a list of a bunch of drugs, including the Z drugs, recommending stronger labeling um, because of the potential risk for sleep-related behaviors such as sleep eating and sleep driving. Um, so the majority of these effects have been seen with zolpidem, um, but it's thought that it's probably because of that's most, what we most commonly see and most use. Um, also have the effect of uh, affecting cognition, memory, um, and, and producing some bizarre behavior. Um, so drug interactions between zolpidem and other serotonergic uh, SSRIs and tricyclics also have been noted to uh, uh, produce hallucinations, as we just talked about. Um, and finally, a tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal are reported with these drugs. Um, it, it does appear to be a little less severe than with benzos, but the, uh, the withdrawal effects are, are pretty similar. So they include insomnia, delirium, craving, anxiety, tremor, palpitations, sometimes even rarely psychosis and seizures. Um, you also can get rebound insomnia if you stop the drug suddenly. So there is, because of these things, there is a pretty high potential for abuse um, of these drugs. Um, as far as analysis and detection of these drugs, um, uh, mainly the, the primary means are, are gas and liquid chromatography and uh, mass spectrometry. Um, and and these, these methods are also useful because you can then also detect benzodiazepines and other um, drugs as you're looking for the Z drugs. So blood and urine are the most common um, bodily fluids that are tested. Urine is, is nice because um, it actually has a longer detection window so that hangs around a little bit longer. So uh, the detection window in plasma um, is about 6 to 20 hours and in urine it, it goes out to about 24 to 48 hours. Um, and this is probably increased with super therapeutic ingestions, which we've seen do happen. So they've really been looking into the, to doing a lot more testing on these drugs, specifically for in drug facilitated crimes. Um, and again, the the maximum maximum recommended time intervals for detection are uh, 48 to 72 hours. They've also done some tests, some oral fluid testing. Um, it's pretty simple, it's non-invasive, um, so people propose to do roadside testing. Um, it's a lower, low risk of transmissible infection as opposed to having to deal with blood. Um, and it's more likely to show very recent drug exposure. Um, but of course there's disadvantages, um, which include uh, inadequate saliva volumes, interference from food, um, and lower drug concentrations than what we see in the urine. They've also talked about doing hair analysis. Um, and really that would be useful for mostly just for confirming prior exposure to the Z drugs. But in general, detection um, in the hair is difficult, uh, mostly due to just low uptake into the hair. The other uh, difficulty is that um, it has to be interpreted pretty uh, appropriately um, because in, that has to be based on the limits of detection. Specifically, you wouldn't be able to tell exactly what dose they ingested and um, just there's very poor uptake to get a positive result in the first place. Um, so so they're, they're definitely starting to, to test for these drugs more in, in, in forensic toxicology. Um, and they've looked at, they've done now some studies with postmortem redistribution. So depending on the Z drug, it, it, it is a little bit different. So Zolpidem has been reported to have um, pretty significant postmortem redistribution, um, and as well as uh, Zopocon, um, but 
the data for Zaleplon is not quite as uh, is not quite as robust yet. Um, so finally, for the clinical toxicology, um, there's been reports of abuse, poisoning, and overdose, and all with all of these drugs, um, and it's probably related more to the increased availability and prescription of these drugs. Um, so, uh, for specifically for uh, Zaleplon, um, the pharmacokinetic data is a little bit better. So they think that there's a little bit lower risk of, of toxicity and fatalities for this specific drug. Um, but it, again, the detection window is a little bit more limited because as a short, it's so short acting. And so we might actually just be missing a lot of these cases. Um, they talk about a, a, a few studies um, looking at specifically the toxicity involved with overdose. So Garnier um, in 1994 reported um, a ingestions up to 1.4 grams of zolpidem, and you did see coma, respiratory depression, cardiovascular toxicity, and death. Um, and since then, they've also reported more uh, uh, stories of agitation, hallucinations, and psychosis from overdoses. They've also seen hemolytic anemia, met hemoglobinemia, um, specifically from zopoclone, and then and they think this is probably related to oxidative stress. Um, with regards to pediatric ingestions, um, the onset of the drowsiness usually comes on pretty early. Um, and fortunately, a few cases actually require any intervention. Usually, they, they've just been watched. Um, and within the first hour, um, if there's no significant effects, they generally do OK. Um, interestingly, for Zaleplon, some, some manufacturers have added a blue colorant um, just to uh, minimize the covert drug administration um, to get, so you know if you're getting something that someone else might have put in your drink. So treatment for, for generally for all the Z drug overdoses um, is largely supportive. Um, most times you can expect a complete recovery within six hours. Um, the use of activated charcoal is generally not recommended um, due to the increased risk versus benefit, um, specifically because most of these people probably will be a little bit sleepy. Um, so they talk a little bit about flumazenil. Um, it does show effect to, to reverse the, the effects. However, like in benzodiazepines, you have to use a lot of caution, um, specifically in polydrug or unknown overdoses, um, just to be careful about unmasking some proconvulsant drugs um, and possibly leading to further seizure activity. Um, so we're, there's been a few reported deaths, um, but mostly it's because of secondary to bizarre behavior, falls, or accidents. So in the study that I mentioned by Garnier, 6% um, of the, the Zolpidem overdose cases died, um, but they did note that none were actually, none were directly attributed to the Zolpidem. Um, and the majority of cases also that involves Obedim, who died, had a uh, mixed drug overdoses. So definitely could have been related to another ingestion. So most commonly, as we see with a lot of other ingestions, um, alcohol, antidepressants, and benzodiazepines and opioids are common. So um, they looked at, and then another study looked at the fatality toxicity, fatal toxicity index. Um, and it had actually, the Z drugs had a lower FTI than other drugs. So the Zolpidem and Zopoclone had two deaths per million prescriptions written, um, while Benzos had seven per million, and Barbiturates had 150 deaths per million prescriptions. Um, so overall, compared to the others, the Z drugs did have a lower uh, uh, fetal toxicity index. Um, so Finally, uh, they just talk generally about the short half-lives of these drugs, and they just talk about how the fact that it, a lot of times it's difficult to find in, in forensic cases just because they're usually metabolized prior to um, uh, being able to get the samples.
All right, good. Sort of a summary of the three drugs and their pharmacology there. I mean, they did cite some numbers that forensically, you know, may come up, although certainly there hasn't been enough experience to say, you know, where they lie. Therapeutically, at least resulpidem, therapeutic uh, maximum concentration is about 100 to 200 nanograms per mil, and then fatal cases about tenfold higher than that at 1,000. So that's at least one, perhaps, number to keep in mind. And again, it's hard to interpret these because you mentioned there's some post-mortem redistribution that occurs in some of these cases. But most of the deaths that occurred, at least so far, have been these polydrug or polysubstance abuse scenarios where they're using more than just zolpidem alone. So it's always hard to figure out what to do with patients when they come in. They just take some zolpidem, they get a little sleepy, we usually watch them, they get fine. Same thing on the pediatric cases, you know, they get a little sleepy, we call them back. If they're too sleepy, we send them in. Nobody has a threshold yet, although we're trying to come up with a, a good protocol for that both at both of our centers here to try to figure out when to send the, uh, the kids in who have taken maybe one or two of their parents' or caregivers' zolpidems, because none of these are really approved for use in toddler-sized children for any, any reason. So perhaps the sort of the more bizarre thing that happens with zolpidem specifically and perhaps the other drugs, which we haven't looked at, is these bizarre events like sleep driving and sleep eating and sleep walking and bizarre parasomnias. So to tell us a little bit more about that and its impact on other human performance behaviors is our fellow Annette. Alrighty, so I'm going to be talking about in the Z zone, the effects of Z drugs and human performance in driving. Um, you can also just skip through the introduction because for the most part we've already talked about it, but they're focusing on sulfidin, salopone, nexopiclone. Um, and they do mention again that in March of 2007 these were part of the drugs that had were mentioned by the FDA requiring stronger labeling. Um, based on uh, parasomnia, such as sleep eating and sleep driving. Since 2007, um, Australia itself has shown uh, higher reports associating zolpidem and uh, parasomnias, amnesias, hallucinations, and suicidality. And they've actually done some uh, retrospective analysis that does show some increased risk prior to all the publicity that took place in 2007. They're actually looking at the, in this particular review, at the adver adverse effect profile of these drugs, particularly looking at human co cognition, behavior, next day performance, and driving ability. So when it comes to cognition, uh, it appears to be a dose-dependent effect on anterograde amnesia, and there tends to be an inability to remember the parasomnia or the complex behavior. They actually looked at healthy volunteers, and six hours after administration, there was impaired uh, word recall and recognition that appeared to be dose-dependent in fashion. At that moment in time, they did not notice any effect with saliplome at doses up to 20 milligrams. They actually looked at sobiclome at a dose of 7.5 milligrams. It appeared to impair memory and cognitive function uh, using the digit symbol substitution test, the word burning test, and the Sternberg memory scanning test. Um, and it looks like esopoclone uh, the enantiomer failed to have that same effect. And when they actually did um, sleep restriction protocols, there was significant next day residual effects. So if you actually didn't go to sleep and had difficulty getting a sufficient amount of sleep, you were more impaired. Um, it appears that um, there is some tolerance in the benzodiazepines. However, when they actually check the Z drugs, they do not appear to develop tolerance. So the more you take of the medication, doesn't prevent you from developing these bad side effects. And it appears that um, even if you take it nightly for an extended period of time um, and they woke you up in the middle of the night, um, it didn't get any better. They actually have talked a little bit about why this all happens. And um, we all know that C drugs will have activity at the GABA-A receptor. Uh, they think that there might be some proportional, uh, that is proportional to the binding affinity. And they think that some of the uh, metabolism substrates might actually lead to a higher incidence of these effects. It's another potential explanation that sort of goes into how the, uh, all these agents have an ability to reduce latency and then block memory consolidation. And then this particular effect with sulfidem is almost equivalent equivocal to that scene with Bursad or Midazolam. So again, benzos might not necessarily be that much worse. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they actually looked at um, the odds ratio for adverse events around these agents, and it turns out that it's a 14 to 26.3 um, odds ratio towards adverse effects when you compare them with other hypnotics. And unfortunately, the problem is that there's no EEG evidence of what happens with during these parasomnic events when people are taking these drugs. So we don't really know where it's emanating from or what they're doing. Um, it does tend to be a concern, though, because a lot of these drugs are also being given to folks who at baseline have these events. So it's hard to judge whether it's making them easier to come or if it's a new phenomenon. And they talked about what parasomnias mean. Um, they talk about nightmares, terror, sleepwalking, sleep eating, sleep talking, sleep sex, and sleep driving. And they have actually shown that tends to be worse in women. Um, they believe because they have a higher milligram per kilogram dosing rather than an actual gender preponderance. And uh, it turns out that um, women tend to be more likely to have those, and they also tend to... Um, not do as well. And then men actually have a higher risk of suicidality associated with these drugs. Turns out that um, when you actually look at psychiatric outpatients by themselves, um, they actually have a 5% rate of amnesia or somnambulism. They actually separated sleep driving in this particular article, and they sort of described it as driving a vehicle in a semi-awake state. Um, so you're getting out of bed during sleep, and then you have no memory of the event afterwards. And uh, they consider it a variant of sleepwalking because you're partially aroused when this is happening. It tends to happen in the first few hours of ingestion. And uh, it's different from actually drug-related driving impairment because it's not when you're actually awake when you're doing the driving. Um, before 2006, there had only been 14 reported cases. turns out that um, there's been further cases since then. Um, and most of those involved sulpidone, and there was only one case with talipone. Unfortunately, there's actually no very good clinical case reports showing actual polysomnographic evidence, and the doses have been anywhere from 10 to 12.5 milligrams. Some of them have been on for a few weeks. Others have been on for two years, and the one sort of theme that kind of kept coming through was that they tended to have other agents on board, either alcohol or sedative agents, and they tended to have previous experience with other parasomnias. When, what about the psychomotor performance part? Well, it's actually pretty concerning because there's a significant number of elderly individuals in these particular drugs, um, and there's a higher risk for falls as well as motor vehicle collisions for the elderly. Turns out that if you look at it, it takes about 13 people as a number to treat to actually get better sleep. However, you can actually have six as a number to harm. So not a very good side effect profile in regards to that. Um, turns out that um, they've actually checked residual effects, and folks tend to have dizziness, postural instability, ataxia, and falls. And, you know, elderly and falls are never a good thing. Lots of bones get broken that way. Head injuries take place. Sometimes death occurs. And there was a Korean study that actually looked at the risk of hip fractures, and it almost doubled when folks were in sulpidum. And then they actually did balance tests with both uh, sulpidum and sopiclum, and they actually found that there was uh, dose-dependent effects leading to sway as well as body balance difficulties. And it was actually correlated to peak plasma levels, but it actually persisted when the drug was actually being cleared from the system. Um, and this was actually a really interesting study. They gave elderly folks five milligrams, woke them in the middle of the night, and had them walk a 10-centimeter white beam, and they compared them to younger ones and controls. It turns out that if you were woken up within two hours, you actually um, tended to fall, which seems makes sense. And then when they actually looked, the younger folks didn't fall nearly as often as the older folks did, um, but they did actually have notice and persistent impairment that older subjects, um, 2 out of 12, actually continue to have difficulty at 30 minutes after waking. Um, and then when they actually looked at um, the psychomotor impairment for salaplone, uh, <coughs> folks at 20 milligrams still had some uh, difficulty around one hour, but they have no residual effects at six hours. So if you're looking at somebody that's potentially going to have to wake up in the middle of the night, maybe salaplone is a better agent than sulpidone.
It's always a question if you have elderly people that they're on diuretics, they have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, or they just naturally wake up in the middle of the night. So you think you're giving these really safe drugs, and in fact they get up and they, they can't walk a straight line essentially. So they get through. Yeah, so then they also talked about effects on driving, which is pretty important because most people need to get places. Um, it turns out that uh, Z drugs as well as benzodiazepines were involved in about three quarters of cases with uh, impaired driving. And about almost 20% of folks had detectable benzodiazepines when they actually went into trauma evaluations in the emergency department. It turns out that the Z drugs are actually made their way into the screening of both deceased drivers or those that are impaired. And they definitely have some residual effects uh, after you take them for sleep at night. Turns out that Canadians found that they could you could double your risk for motor vehicle crashes after you took any sort of uh, hypnotic medication. <coughs> and uh, you actually increased the, your odds ratio in the UK to 1.62 after including both benzos and zopiclone in that particular study. And then when they actually looked at drivers that had died um, so Bicloma, the most frequently encountered hypnotic drug that was present in their post-mortem samples. Um, so there's a question as to whether um, the risk was actually associated with increased dosing because they tended to have higher levels than you would have expected in their post-mortem samples. And it turns out that women, again, um, will drive significantly worse uh, than men when they take the same dose of sulfonum. <laughs> wow. uh, on the record. Um, and then in regards to driving impairment, uh, they actually do a on-the-road driving test. It's considered the golden gold standard. Um, it turns out that sopiclone at doses of 7.5 milligrams led to driving impairment. Um, and that was the morning after and the middle of the night dosing was the most concerning. Now you add alcohol to the picture, and to be honest, not a high dose of alcohol, 0.03%, and you actually um, make things worse. If you actually end up with a 15 milligram dose of sopiclone, it can actually lead to persistent driving impairment throughout the afternoon, and even up to 16 hours after you took it the night before. And then salopone um, actually has not been shown to uh, impair driving in the morning. So it seems if you're looking at somebody that's going to drive the next day and somebody who's going to have to wake up in the middle of the night, the safest agent currently is Salopong. Um, however, you got to be careful because once you start getting above therapeutic dosing, which a lot of people actually do, um, then you increase your imperatability. Impar Regards to forensics and legal considerations, turns out that the Swedish have actually looked at um, lots of postmortem analysis and they've seen that um, a lot of folks are using these drugs super therapeutically and that the higher the dose, uh, the worse your driving impairment and that that impairment can actually get close enough and maybe even worse than alcohol. And the dosing concentrations weren't that incredibly large at 130 nanograms per ml to make that same conclusion. And then finally, they talked about how um, the higher the levels, the higher risk of car accidents as well as driving impairments. Unfortunately, that there's going to be individuals are going to metabolize differently. Therefore, it's pretty hard to come up with an exact legal limit. Although, if you look at Norway, that's exactly what they've done. They have both sulfidum and sopiclone. They've established legal limits in which you're allowed to drive. They've established limits in which um, you have driving impairment. And they've also turned around and established limits in which um, are worse than alcohol intoxication. So they actually have three separate limits that they're pursuing. So the higher the drug concentration they have, the more penalties and consequences associated with your use. Um, and then there's an international council on alcohol, drugs, and traffic safety that have actually come up with three separate categories of sort of how to measure drugs. Um, category one is me meant to have limited driving impairment and is equivocal to about a blood alcohol point, less than 0.05. Then there's category two, which produces minor to moderate effects. And it's approximately a 0.05 to 0.08 blood alcohol. And then there's category three, 
which is dangerous when you're driving and it's greater than 0.08% of alcohol. Looks like soplapone is considered a category three. So again, not a very good agent to give to folks that are responsible for driving. Um, and then sulpidum and salopone are considered category two unless you actually increase their dosing. If you're higher than therapeutic dosing, then all of a sudden you move up to category, up a category. And um, there's been plenty of cases in which folks have brought it up to the courts, and it doesn't look very good to the courts if you actually have other drugs on board or you were ingesting alcohol while taking these agents. And uh, some folks are sort of forcing defendants to demonstrate that they ingested this particular drug unknowingly and that they were intoxicated involuntarily. So it becomes pretty hard to prove that if you have a prescription in your name for it. So it looks like these drugs might not be that much better than benzodiazepines, and they can actually have some pretty significant residual effects that can lead to both morbidity and mortality for the person taking the drugs as well as those in other cars in their proximity. Yeah, I think it's it's been an issue. We don't have a per se law, which means the level is automatically defines you as being intoxicated in the United States with these drugs, and a lot of states have like laws that, you know, if you fail a field sobriety test and they find these in your system and you know, have a good reason for taking them, like why would you be driving if you took a drug to make you go to bed? doesn't make any sense if it's high enough. Um, uh, you know, different jurisdictions have approached it differently. Um, there were some high-profile cases like senators and congressmen who got caught driving the wrong way that I think opened the can of worms on this and uh, highlighted this. and some high-profile criminal cases where people tried to use uh, the ambient defense, if you will, that they committed their crimes in the influence of this uh, amnestic event, and whether or not they were decided that they were going to commit a crime or not, certainly up for grabs. I'm not going to get into the details of that. But in general, I mean, at least the Zolpidem, it's been around the longest, doesn't seem to have that great of a track record, although it seems to be the most prescribed and now comes in at least four different forms, short, long, and sublingual and spray, which makes the least amount of sense to me. Because it's like, I'll take two sprays tonight instead of one spray and I'll get better sleep. It's just people that just, even behavior doesn't seem to work that way. Um, so it's something that's out there. The number of visits to the ER are going up. I haven't seen any deaths yet with this, although we do get some calls from, you know, coroners, medical examiners with reports wondering if it was contributory, and it's always hard to say when they find seven or eight drugs or multiple drugs in their system and alcohol, and this seems to be one of the ones that keeps showing up over and over again. So any uh, comments from anyone around? Uh, I've had a trauma case recently where it was in the morning, and it was after the use of Zolpidem, so uh, I think it was one of the residual effects, uh, no alcohol on board. And the woman fell asleep driving. Mm -hmm. That's very worrisome, actually. It's a, it's one of the reasons why I always refuse to write a prescription for insomnia from the emergency department. I just don't think it's uh, uh, it's too high risk, and these articles I think reinforce that. And uh, even though the patient and sometimes the resident makes a good case for why we should have sympathy for this person that can't get to sleep, uh, it's I just don't take that risk for using these drugs in a patient that we were just meeting for the first time, and especially the elderly. I don't think it's very safe to do this. Yeah, I mean, naturally, I mean, as you get older, you know, you actually do sleep less and you cycle through the different REM cycles, um, you know, less. And so you get a lot of elderly people come in, ah, oh, I just can't get sleep. And they always want some of the people, their doctors tell them to take Benadryl, which is an equally bad drug for all the anticholinergic side effects. And they're on all the different benzos that have been out there. Clearly, all the benzos have been related to. Uh, strongly, there's tons of articles out there about hip fractures and falls and mortality and next day driving fatalities. And I think that that is finally catching up with at least Zolpidem. I don't know about the other two just yet, but as they get bigger market share, perhaps we'll see more of that as, as well. I think it's kind of cool that they do the study that they walk these people up in the middle of the night, try to walk them up and down like, like a balance beam kind of thing. Let's see if they fall off. Fall off. Fall off. Fall off. So. And we had a physician impairment case in Tallahassee. 
yeah. uh, physician uh, had was chronically using self-prescribing Ambien and uh, came into work one morning. Supposedly, it had a sleep study the night before and couldn't couldn't get to sleep for the sleep study. Mm. And so they gave him Ambien, and he came to work the next day and he was totally impaired. Mm -hmm. And just mumbling to to family members and that sort of thing, and ended up losing a license over it. Oh. Yeah. Now, yeah, I say a big word of caution to anyone in emergency medicine or any other field out there that's listening to this. About 20% of the medical emergency medicine residents are taking these drugs, and it's probably a really bad idea uh, to overemphasize that, that you're going to show up for work one day just acting goofy, and it's going to impact the rest of your life, as that case example has showed us. There's probably better ways to deal with sleep than sleep-wake cycle, cycling in general. So any thoughts from our colleagues in uh, Utah? I mean, you guys are at the retail pharmacy end of things, so are you seeing a lot of this being handed out with prescriptions over the counter? Yeah, yeah. It's really, we see it really frequently. I think uh, Ambien is one of the most dispensed drugs to, the old, to older patients. The older patients, yeah. Pr yeah. Pr precisely a group that probably shouldn't really be on these drugs. Ironically, we hear about the Zalopan as being the safer in a lot of aspects, and I think it's the least commonly seen. Yeah. yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I wonder, are there any studies of Trazodone head to head with these drugs? Uh, because Trazodone is used commonly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I haven't seen a head to head as far as next day impairment or putting people in driving modulators or anything like that. We can take a look and see if there's anything out there. Um, I do know the postural hypotension part of it is pretty significant because it does have some alpha blocking things. So, I mean, the big risk is you don't want to have an old person stand up in the middle of the night, their blood pressure drops to like 70 over 30, and boom, they go down, hit their head on the way to the bathroom. That, that always makes me a, a little nervous. I, I think. I'm not sure if trazodone's on the classic beers list of medications. We have it up in the back wall in fine print there, but uh, I know that all of the anticholinergic-related medications are for similar reasons. People wake up and get goofy in the middle of the night. So um, there is no quick chemical answer to elderly insomnia, except uh, it's okay to take a nap during the day and uh, maybe not sleep as much during the night. That's a normal and part, of, know, part of aging. I've never heard of people dying of insomnia. No, no. So just have to counsel people that it's a natural part of their um, cycle of life. Say it there. Hakuna Matata. Until next time. <laughs>